friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. This is Holy Saturday, and we are deep in contemplation of that great mystery, the thing that fills us Christians with joy even in the darkest times, fills us with hope when all others around us are in despair. The mystery of the love that God has for each and every one of us that enabled him, that impelled him to taste death, even death on a cross, and then to rise. We are an Easter people. We are a people of joy and and tremendous expectation, even again in the darkest days. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m., or catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. We have a special show for you today where I'm blessed to talk with two of my very good friends. First, Jeannie Mancini. She's the fearless leader behind the March for Life. We're going to discuss all the work that goes on in the March, all the stuff you don't know about because it's happening in the background, including work that she does and her her organization does throughout the entire year advancing the protections for the unborn. We're going to get her reaction to Javier Becerra's confirmation as HHS secretary, a real tragedy, and I can say that as a Catholic and a physician. Later on, we'll talk to Monse Alvarado of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty all about her new show on uh, EWTN airing Friday nights. We're going to go behind the scenes of EWTN News In-Depth and look at some of the biggest issues facing religious freedom right now. But first, to consider for a moment that this is Holy Saturday, we are nearing the culmination of Holy Week, which is the culmination of the that long penitential season of Lent in which the Lord has asked us and asks us every year to stop and consider how it is that our failings, our our weaknesses contribute to that awful burden that God carried for us on His back on the way to Calvary, to the awful suffering that He endured for our sakes. And then after considering all this, He offers us the joy of the resurrection, which is the joy of knowing that we are beloved sons and daughters of God, every single one of us, no matter how far we have sunk, no matter how high we rise, we are all simply his dear beloved children and today we're full of the anticipation of easter we are an easter joyful people and never more joyful than when we consider how much god has loved us now i'd like to introduce Jeannie mancini she is a very dear friend and a champion of the unborn she puts on the massive march for life every year that attracts thousands of people to the capital like me people like me and also (laughs) she puts on several marches across the country marking that very sad day that abortion was legalized in the united states back in 1973 so Jeannie, welcome to conversations with consequences Well, Gracie, thank you so much for having me. Jeannie, I wanted to have you come on because this is a very strange year that we are that we are embarking on 2021. 
And so much has changed. The landscape has shifted really drastically. For instance, the March for Life did not take place in person. It was a, a virtual event. And, and even that was, was a big deal to me. Uh, the March for Life is, is a place uh, and, a, and a moment when people collect from all over the United States and then see each other in, in all our strength and all the joy and all the enthusiasm of our pro-life cause. And, and I think just even that one day at the Capitol changes so many hearts and, 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 and energizes so many people to go back to their communities and really you know, take that bull by the horns and, and, and say, I can be a champion for the unborn. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it did look different. We had, as you, um, you'll you remember, Gracie, we had a smaller leaders march and then the rally was virtual. And it was such a difficult decision mm-hmm, to, sure. to make and, and to tell people stay home. I mean, basically, like we, we sort of had a symbolic march, I guess you could say, where the, you know, we had a, less than 100 leaders carrying roses, wearing the masks, etc. Um, and it was a very somber march. Uh, typically, of course, it's very, even though we're the the reason that we're there is so somber, I think the enthusiasm of the young people for this human rights issue is kind of contagious, you know, and in a way there's such a joy there because of that. Um, but yeah, just a, a different year altogether. And, and I guess maybe seeing the march in that kind of way was a little bit paradigmatic for everything else going on culturally right now. You know what made me sad about that, about the march being held that way is that I felt that the, the events at the Capitol in, on January 6th, just a couple of weeks before, had um, somehow changed the mood for the march. And I felt that that was unfair and unjust because one thing has nothing to do with the other. The people who go to the Capitol uh, on the day of the March for Life couldn't be more loving of all good things about our country, respectful. Uh, it's it's really just a, such a beautiful experience. Uh, you can bring your toddler there and your newborn, and people do, and, and always be perfectly safe. And it's such a beautiful, peaceful protest. So I, I was sorry to see somehow in the media, maybe, and then in the eyes of some people who don't have the right idea about pro-lifers to, <laughs> to sort of put those two things together. Did you feel that too, or am I imagining that? I think I think that's partially right. What I would say is that for those of us living here in D.C., uh, it was such a strange month, uh, January of 2021, in the sense that our capital became almost like a developing country. Uh, and just, I mean, inauguration week, literally, I've never, the entire, and I live right outside of DC. I've never seen this before. They shut down every uh, entry point into the city. Uh, literally, you couldn't go on 395. Wow, uh, I didn't you couldn't know go yeah, no, I mean, they shut and then everything was fenced off, gated off. And still, of course, you see the fencing around the Capitol, um, even in our own building at, you know, we're at 14th and K, there were National Guard right across from our building. I mean, with guns uh, so everywhere you went. I mean, there were more National Guard in in the city at that point than there were um, in any foreign military presence that we have overseas right now, like in the Middle East, for example, et cetera. And so it was such a different world, Gracie. And, and I think part of it was, you know, the response to what happened on January 6th. Uh, and I think part of it was also just the year and so many uh, terrible protests and violent protests um, and, and just the the really kind of scary 
feeling in our culture of political divisiveness, mm-hmm. et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's un- in addition, of course, to the pandemic and, and all of that. So, I mean, it was just one thing after the other. That was a quite, quite an unusual month. And things have freed up a little bit around D.C., but I mean, you still have the, the incredible fencing around the Capitol. In fact, part of the march, what we did was we had to, we ended behind the Supreme Court and we placed our roses uh, in the fencing, you know, it, it, behind the Supreme Court on the stairs there. And that in and of itself was very symbolic, I think, and, and beautiful in a very severe and sorrowful kind of way wow. of what's happening in the culture. I mean, I thought the march really was reflective of what's happening in the culture. And, and it is a, it's a crossroads. I think we're at a crossroads these days. Yeah, that makes a really a very vivid point what you're saying about the divisiveness and the idea of how almost dangerous it would be to collect so many as we are used to on on the days of the normal march for life, you know, tens and tens of thousands of of pro-lifers, maybe they would have been a I don't know, it could have created an ugly reaction on the other side. That's right. There were so many things. Uh, it was a very, very difficult decision. Again, it, it, with the backdrop, of course, being the pandemic. Um, and, and at that point, numbers were still rising, et cetera, et cetera. So, oh, yes, um, of course. So I, hadn't even, I hadn't even thought about COVID. <laughs> right. That's a, a whole other ball of uh, wax, right? <laughs> it's right. Exactly. You know, I, I don't want to, I mean, the March for Life is a lot more than just that March, that one day in D.C. and the days around the country and also the conference before in D.C., which I I love that I always participate in, but the march is a lot more than that. What tell our listeners about all you know a, a broader array of things that the March for Life does as an organization. Oh, I would be delighted to do that. And thank you. In my introduction, you hinted at some of that and, and people never include that. I was just really touched that you did. So so uh, a couple of things. We have a 501c3 and a 501c4. And even though we don't necessarily um, ever endorse political candidates, we get very involved taking the collective voice of marchers to Capitol Hill every day of the year. So let me take a step back and say what our broader mission is. And then I can kind of I can talk a little bit about some of the different things that we do within that. So uh, there are so many wonderful pro-life groups out there. Of course, not enough for the work that's out there to be done. But uh, our particular group and the particular unique charism and mission that we have is to unite equip and mobilize Americans, pro-life Americans in the public square. And so primarily we do that in January. And of course, uh, you know, this is marking the 1973 Roe v. Wade, Doe v. Bolton, Supreme Court decisions that legalized abortion in all the states in the United States for all three trimesters. And so we mark that that day or right around that day every year nationally with hundreds of thousands of participants that come and shut down our city. And we've got different peripheral events around them, like uh, Gracie mentioned the conference. And by the way, uh, Dr. Gracie has been uh, a speaker at the March for Life, speaker at our conference, at our theme debut, all these different things. She's so, so good. And we're really grateful. We also um, then one of the ways that we mobilize, as I said, we're unite, equip, mobilize Americans in the public square is to take your voice, pro-life Americans voices to Capitol Hill year round. We do that through um, our C4. So 
lobbying for different good pro-life bills, uh, or we also do that through taking your voice through action alerts. So we have one of the largest sort of um, most powerful lists, I guess you could say that when something needs to be done or something shouldn't be done, we've got kind of the, the power of pro-life Americans and their voice, their unified voice to talk to their elected officials about that. Um, we also do similar things at the state level. So uh, we do state capital marches and uh, that's been a pretty new endeavor of the march, one that was deeply discerned with our board and staff and friends. Uh, and it's something that we've been you know, asked about for years to help start these local and state marches. And so we've done a few. I think this will take off a little bit more towards the end of this year, but we've got five or six of these state marches under our belts and they're fantastic. I mean, basically it's um, rallying the grassroots at the level of the state to impact the culture of life in that local area and just to do the same, unite, equip, mobilize in the state area. Um, and that's where everything really happens before it goes national. So that's exciting. I mean, we know when we have marches that uh, good laws are enacted, bad laws are stopped. Uh, ultimately, the abortion rate comes down, more pregnancy care centers are opened, uh, more abortion clinics are closed, et cetera, et cetera. So these marches can lead to uh, sort of empowering the grassroots, which can make really great things happen. You mentioned uh, your state. Uh, is Florida uh, slated on the list? Do you know? Well, we have been working in Florida for a while, and we've never gotten a march on the books. <laughs> but oh. Oh. It's something that we would very, very much like to do. We've worked with the Family Policy Council and the Catholic Conference there a little bit, and I see that happening in the next few years. Please oh, well, God. that'd be very exciting. There's lots of great pro-lifers in Florida. I got a call from a friend of mine that I used to work with at, the, at one of the uh, pregnancy resource centers here in Miami. Just yesterday, she was calling me about getting something started in her parish on education around pro-life issues, and it reminded me of, of just how much the, all of us in pro-life uh, depend on each one of these little personal efforts. Um, that are happening yeah. right on the ground um, at, at home, at church, at the community center, you know, at the parochial school, at the regular school, and how all these little flames together, you know, grow this huge bonfire that eats up the culture of death, which is so dangerous for all of us. Oh, I love that analogy, Gracie. That's, I, and it, sometimes I think, you know, it's like the devil works in divide and conquer. And I think sometimes there can be a temptation to feel almost a little competition, maybe for donors or different things in the pro-life movement. And there's, it's so uh, sinister because there's just no mm -hmm. lack of work to be done. And you're absolutely right. We all need to lean on each other and like, uh, gosh, we're just losing so many babies every year and women uh, are being so wounded by this scourge of abortion. And the more that we can do to light those candles, I mean, the better off our culture will be. So I, I just love that analogy. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we've been speaking with Jeannie Mancini, president of the March for Life. So Jeannie, this is a very different administration that just started from the one that we uh, were dealing with for the last four years. The last administration had um, some really energetic pro-life people in it that were promoting great pro-life policies. Too many to go into, really. And now we have a very different outlook. One of the things that worries me a lot, and I'm sure it, it worries our listeners and you, is the appointment of uh, Javier Becerra as the head of HHS, the Health and Human Services Department um, of the United States. What, what do you feel about Mr. Javier Becerra? 
Oh, I'm I'm quite quite upset about this. Uh, I, I had the opportunity to work in the Department of Health and Human Services and in the office of the secretary during a pro-life administration, during the Bush administration, and then in the first year of the Obama administration. And uh, the idea that we have such an aggressive abortion, you know, advocate in in that role is just mind-boggling to me and, and scary a he has zero medical background yes, yes. And, and he's you know our, our health minister essentially internationally but b the amount of i mean for lack of a better word power that is given to that particular cabinet position with regard to abortion and life issues is it's unbelievable i mean so just one small example of this uh we can consider Obamacare, of course, which passed in 2009, and then it went to then-Secretary Sebelius, and her department had, under her purview, the the power, essentially, and the responsibility to analyze that law and see, you know, what certain things would be included in it. So, uh, in the mandate, of course, we'll remember that they included abortion-inducing drugs that would be covered mm-hmm. with no cost pay, no co-pay, no cost-sharing, etc., and uh, hence, suddenly groups like March for Life were forced to cover uh, drugs and devices that destroy life, you know, which goes against our very mission uh, in our health insurance. And um, and then the ensuing lawsuits, uh, we won ours, thanks be to God. Of course, we're all very uh, familiar with the Little Sisters of the Poor, etc. But that's one small example of the power of the HHS secretary. They get to decide and analyze laws um, according to their likes and and um, their interests. And so uh, with someone like Javier Becerra in this role, someone who's been so actively, you know, working against pro-lifers. And um, again, he's just he's a political I mean, he's had a political legal career, essentially. And I, I'm I'm just dismayed that he's in this leadership position. And I think we have to watch very closely um, every step of the way and loudly uh, speak up on behalf of the inherent dignity of the human person every step of the way with him at the helm at HHS. Well, thank God we have the March for Life speaking for us and helping us to organize uh, against uh, what promises to be a very aggressive administration from Javier Becerra of the HHS. You know, one of the things I really dislike about him is that he attacked pregnancy support centers in California when he was in a similar position in California. He he was attorney general, wasn't he, in California? Yeah, yes. he was attorney general in California. <laughs> yeah, because I keep getting right. I confused because I, you know, I keep thinking of him, well, because he's head of the Health and Human Services, he must be a physician, but no, he was a lawyer who attacked people like us, like me, who work at a pregnancy support center where it is our mission to help women and their husbands couples uh, many many times who want to bring their children into the world but don't have the means to do so we help them achieve their aims there we help them we help them make that choice that they want to make and he wanted to force pregnancy support centers in california to advertise for abortion which is you know so wrong on so many levels and i'm i'm really scared that he's going to want to put all of the hhs um, at the service of this pro-abortion ideology that he espouses. Well, 
Gracie, I agree. And, and, you know, (laughs) you being a medical doctor, by the way, has the right to say this, I think even more than me. Uh, But uh, I mean, I I couldn't agree more. Uh, His track record is terrible. I mean, you gave one very important example. He also went so aggressively against David Delighton and the trafficking of, you know, little hearts, little lungs, little livers on behalf of Planned Parenthood and other um, allies. He, when he was in Congress, he got a hundred percent voting record from NARAL, from Planned Parenthood. Again, he's a pro-abortion career politician. And uh, I think we're going to need to watch very closely with his appointments at HHS, with the funding mechanisms, with how he analyzes law, etc. He is no friend of the unborn. You know, we mentioned, you mentioned a little while ago, a chemical means of preventing pregnancy, things like chemical abortion, which actually is not a means of preventing pregnancy. It's a means of eliminating a pregnancy. What's been going on in our country now with the pandemic and with the advocates of chemical abortion? This is a big topic. Thank you for bringing it up. Well, I know. I know you were the person who could tell us. Uh, we have our work cut out for us with this one. So, uh, okay, a little bit of background. So, of course, in the year 2000, chemical abortion was approved. This is totally different than some drugs and devices, which are called contraceptives, which can also have modes of action that can be destructive of life. Mm-hmm. But this is actually called and labeled as an abortion. RU486, chemical abortion, sometimes called medical abortion. When it was approved by the FDA in the year 2000, it was approved in a politicized rushed and flawed way. Um, And it was approved with a black box warning. Uh, Doctors could prescribe it if there were a certain, you know, very close distance to a hospital because of fear of hemorrhaging, um, blood clots, et cetera, things like that. When you look at the difference between chemical abortion and surgical abortion, and and I'm just taking for granted here that all of us listening agree that abortion takes the life of one and wounds the life of another. Okay. So like that goes without saying, but Chemical abortion, bottom line, is it's much harder on women's health, okay, than surgical abortion. And uh, study after study is showing this. It's like four times more likely to have an impact physiologically on, on women and their health. You can look at the FDA, what's called their adverse event reports, to learn more about uh, all the terrible hospitalization, hemorrhaging, even death, you know, of, of chemical abortion, how it's just much harder on women than surgical abortion. Again, it always takes the life of a baby. So what we've seen in recent years are um, the abortion lobby is is lobbying very hard to remove different uh, health oversight from chemical abortion, even though it is, you know, harder on women's health. It's like in the name of access to abortion or really in the name of women's health, they're kind of uh, they're hurting women, really, and they're doing it service to women um, just trying to make abortion access more wide open. So during the pandemic, some of the health oversight and regulations were removed from chemical abortion, even though it's much harder on women. And, and certain things you have to do, like you've got to have an ultrasound to rule mm-hmm. out, for example, ectopic pregnancy Absolutely or to see what, yes, crazy. You can speak to this so much more than I can in your, in your background. I mean, clearly. And so, so that's been the case. Well, now we've learned in the last few weeks that the Biden administration is being pushed to completely remove oversight and allow for telemed chemical abortion with very, very little, if any oversight. And all I can say is that is going to be a disaster for women's health and, and, 
do a huge disservice to women, obviously the babies too, but that's what we're seeing is a huge push for that right now. Oh, well, we have to pray that that doesn't happen. I mean, it's really taking, you know, the whole idea of, of the beginning when abortion was first legalized in the United States, the pro-abortion side said, well, we got to bring abortion out from the back alley where it's so dangerous and women are losing their lives to practitioners who are uh, unethical and un untrained, right? Um, and so now this chemical abortion puts it right back in the back alley where women are going to be losing, losing their lives again to practitioners who are not it, were not able to control in a, in a process that's very painful and dangerous. Um, and it's going to happen to girls, to women under 18, maybe to girls as young as 12 or 13, um, because that's that's just how we know these we know that these things happen and they trickle down into our girls. It's so true. It's so true, Gracie. And then to uh, compiled with that. So just to add one completely additional thing in, in, in and above and beyond the safety component is the fact that the woman herself becomes the abortionist because she's ingesting the pill. She's taking the pill. She's ingesting the, the regimen, the two pills. And there's something psychologically that happens when she herself has become the abortionist um, just in the sense of I think it's harder psychologically she also sees and this is this is graphic she sees the baby pass mm -hmm. so psychologically chemical abortions also harder on women because she's become the abortionist and she sees the baby pass I mean there's so much to this that is just so inhumane and so so difficult and ugly you know even the tremendous pain of the process because in a surgical oh, yeah. abortion the pain is deadened by anesthetics but in uh, a chemical abortion women do this in, on the raw they're doing they're experiencing they every every cramp and every every terrible abdominal pain and the nausea I mean I think it's I'm just so sad for people women girls who are going to be pushed into these tragedies by by their circumstances and also by uh, a pro-abortion a, a pro-abortion administration that that wants more of this for our girls our sisters and our daughters and are so sad but you know Jeannie it's almost time to go but I wanted to ask you how about some good news so for instance uh, I've heard good things are happening in Arkansas does that ring a bell I think that, I'm not sure exactly which piece of good news right now. I, we, what we are seeing at the level of the state is lots of good incremental laws being passed and some heartbeat laws and all of that. But Gracie, here's what I would say is for good news. There's a lot of it out there. Um, and uh, what's much harder than changing laws, even though they're obviously very important and we're working for that, is changing hearts and minds. And we're, we're winning there. Mm -hmm. I mean, more and more Americans are self-identifying as being pro-life. More Americans would limit abortion at most of the first three months of pregnancy. I mean, that's like eight out of 10 Americans for 12 years strong feel that way. Um, more young people are becoming more pro-life. The abortion rate is lower than it's ever been since Roe v. Wade. So I think culturally we are making some tremendous gains. And, and to me, those are the hardest gains to make. But we certainly have our work cut out for us politically and policy-wise over these next few years. Well, I think, Jeannie, you can be very proud that these gains are being made greatly in part by the March for Life and all the wonderful work that you do in D.C. in the day of the march and then all across the country and, and all your efforts at the, cap at the different state capitals and at the Capitol.
Oh, Gracie, it's only because we're like joining together hand in hand mm-hmm. or glove in glove, I should say, in the March for Life when it's so cold. But uh, but we're, I'm so grateful to work alongside you. I'm so, so delighted that you, a doctor, would give your life to this, that you would adopt. I mean, you're just such a beautiful role model. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Jeannie. And thank you again for joining us. And to our listeners, for more information about Jeannie and the important work of the March for Life and to donate to their wonderful cause, visit marchforlife.org. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're so happy to have a good friend of the shows and, and a good friend personally, Monse Alvarado, with us. She's Vice President and Executive Director of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. Monse can also now be caught live on EWTN every Friday on her very own show called EWTN News In Depth. Welcome back to the show, Monse. Thank you so much, Gracie. It's so good to be with you. You know, it's really, really exciting to see you hosting this new show. I love the format. I love the way it's uh, produced in such a high quality way. It's very attractive to watch. You're very attractive to watch. <laughs> and so Don't let my mom hear you say that. <laughs> I'm sure she's very proud of a pretty girl. But anyway, it's a wonderful show. And I love the taglines that you use. So here's one. I quote, while secular society often portrays religious views as unwelcome, EWTN's roundtable discussion series unapologetically examines and analyzes important issues and events from a strictly Catholic perspective. I really like that, that you are bringing a, not only a Catholic perspective, but one that, you know, really deepens, is able to sort of sink down into important topics that are swirling around us all the time, but that we don't take the time, necessarily, we don't take the time to really explore in the depth that, that they warrant. You know, it's one of those things that is very personal to me because Working at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, I talk about religion all the time and how it's good for society. It's a pillar of civil society to be able to either partner with the government or reach beyond what the government can't do, right, and help people who are marginalized, who are in crisis. We've seen this a lot with the COVID-19 pandemic and how how essential the service that we're inspired and compelled to do as believers in God and for us as Catholics, as believers in Jesus Christ and his salvific nature, you know, all of that is so essential and so important, bringing it into the show as a Catholic and being able to exercise my own religious liberty and talk about how my faith infuses how I view the world and how I don't check my religion when I walk out of my apartment in the morning. I bring it with me and it makes me a better person, a better friend, a better daughter. And for you, I I think that you do the same on this show. And it's just exciting to see that on TV. Now, Monse, on your show, you don't you don't shy away from difficult issues that are politically (laughs) that are politically fraught. And, and I think that's wonderful because, again, we need, we need that faith-filled perspective as, as, we, as we try to understand these issues and we try to respond to them as voters, as people you know, who are politically responsible for what's going on in our country. So, for instance, you recently had Archbishop Jose Gomez talking about a number of issues, but including immigration. And with this horrible crisis that's going on, a humanitarian crisis that's going on at the southern border, you know, was, that a, was that a topic that was difficult to touch? or were you happy with the way that went? I love that issue because I'm an immigrant. So I'm Mm -hmm. a naturalized citizen and it's very personal. It's the same for the Archbishop. You know, we 
share uh, a country of origin. We're both Mexican. And our stories of coming to this country are different. People who are coming to this country now don't have the same experience I had because the system that I use, it changes so rapidly and it's deteriorating so quickly. It's a bipartisan issue for good reason. Like you said, it's humanitarian, but also no administration has gotten this right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I love agree. to say that the Republicans or the Democrats get it right. No, from a Catholic perspective, I think we get it right in understanding that borders are important and that security is important. But at the same time that we're supposed to welcome the stranger and we're called to be good to the orphan and the widow, etc. Those are not those biblical. That's not something that's made up in policy, but it has nuance to it, right? Because the rule of law is real. Governments have sovereignty. Inviting someone to come into your country, you also have to consider that you can house them and close them and take care of them and that your society is generous enough to be able to sustain bringing them in and making them part of your community. And that's an assessment that we haven't made. We talk about the political side of immigration all the time, but we don't talk about our personal call to be engaged in this and what that means and what that's going to ask from us as Catholics and as people. So it was interesting for me to see the Archbishop talk about his personal story about the values immigrants immigrants bring with them to the church in their identity, in their love of worship, love of our native Guadalupe, if you're talking about Mexicans, right? And, and commitment to family values. There's great joy that comes with having immigrants join us. And at the, at the same time, it comes with some complicated questions about what we're actually going to do. And and it's, it's a call to us as citizens, you know, one in five, Americans identified as Catholic were our voters, like you said, it, it, it behooves us to think about what the preeminent priorities are that our faith calls us to be engaged with and how we bring that with us as citizens to the voting ballot box. Have you uh, thought about addressing on your show, or maybe you have addressed it and I haven't seen the episode, uh, the topic of uh, President Joe Biden's Catholicity and the way it's covered in the press? Yeah, you know, I asked this question um, of Archbishop Gomez, I asked him if there was a corrective nature to what they were trying to do with this um, working group from the bishops, what was the role there, if there was unity, and he said that they were united in vision and beliefs, but not in tactics, and that makes sense to me. Everyone has a different approach Mm -hmm. to how they want to address the Biden presidency. It's, you know, a call to mass is wonderful to see. I love to see that people are actually talking about the mass and that religion reporters are forced once again to understand the sacramental nature of the Eucharist, because with the pandemic, we saw that they didn't have a clue how essential and how important it was to us. That's a really um, good point. That. That's a very good point, Monte. I hadn't thought of that. That it's forcing oh, yeah. it's forcing uh, the press to to it. re-encounter the mass as something important. A hundred percent. Look, there is beauty and goodness in everything if we want to see it. I understand the controversial nature, and I said it on my show. I said the words that this administration's position on abortion and same-sex marriage is contrary to Catholic teaching. That is what it is. We don't get to change. 2,000 years of Catholic teaching, whether that force makes it into policy is something else. You know, that's a different discussion, but you would want to see that your Catholic politicians believe what the church believes, uh, believe what, you know, is reflected in the mass, this understanding of human dignity, of welcoming the other, but at the same time, fighting for those who are marginalized and in crisis and and being for the greatest genocide of all time. So I think that there are big picture questions to be asked and and we have to ask them ourselves, the lady, not wait for the bishops to do anything. We have to ask those questions and we have to demand that of our Catholic politicians and support them and helping them find the right resources so that they're well-formed when they go on the debate floor to talk about these things. I saw a little article written by a Catholic journalist talking about Mm -hmm. how 
President Biden gave up ice cream for Lent, of for, course. For Lent, yeah. <laughs> and I thought to myself, hmm, I think we can do better. So I think I think it sounds like you're going to do much better than that, Monse, because it's not really it's not really a question. It's yeah, not really a question of these these little uh, Catholic uh, like the like that uh, Catholic you know frosting on a cake. The question is the cake. Like what's in what's baked into this Catholic administration? Uh, what's baked into it as far as policy? That's what's important. Yeah, and it again, Lent is a lovely, wonderful. It has it's full of these rich traditions that remind us of what the goal is. But when you're only talking about the tradition and you're not talking about the goal, if exactly. the goal is our own purification, and we really believe that the purpose that we have here on Earth is to earn or heaven, right? I think that then your perspective changes. It's a conversation starter. I mean, Gracie, did you ever think that we would actually have a conversation about the sacraments, about Lent? Um, Lent is something that brings Christians together. You have many more kind of Protestant denominations participating in Lent and in Lenten sacrifice. These are all conversation starters and we have to, as Catholics, identify them and lean into them. Yeah, Every, and, and every aspect of the broad Catholic Church should pick them up as, 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 as hooks to have these discussions and have these conversations. And it's funny because Lent specifically, as and now we we have come to the end of Lent. Lent is something that lives in the in the collective imaginations of, of Catholics, mm-hmm. even as they've abandoned many other things. And I'm always reminded of this because on the first day of Lent, on Ash Wednesday, when you go out into the street, you see all these people wearing crosses on their foreheads, and you you realize, you know, these are almost vestigial needs of people who understand that need uh, for for penance, for you know, reconsidering the truth of their relationship with God and wanting to, to fix that, even if they don't really know how to. To get back. Absolutely. The other day, Monse, you had our new colleague. We have a new colleague at the Catholic Association, Lee Sneed. And yes. that was a great episode. She was talking about family policy and speaking from her own experience, her vast experience as an adoptive mother. She has three children by adoption. So how was that show? Oh, it was great. You know, I it was interesting to have a conversation about paid family leave because our church, a lot of people don't realize, has a really long tradition of discussing the role of government and the role of the individual. There are encyclicals and Vatican documents written about this to give us that grounding and understanding of how we understand proper government, you know, properly structured engagement and how much control the government has over our lives and how much it doesn't. So Peace Family, family Leave is, is a really interesting discussion that shows us how the government can use its very, very big powers to foster or promote family and family life and the family unit. And if it should or if it shouldn't, that was part of the discussion with Veronique Derugi, who was on the show as well. She's um, she's Protestant. She's, she's a great, um, great spokesperson for uh, economic policy that will foster a woman's ability to build a family with her husband, with her, you know, and, and give a, a stable life to their children together, what that partnership now looks like when we force people to have a two-income household in order to have a living wage. What does that say about our society? And what role can companies play and the government play and then individual communities play in supporting in supporting families? And I think that was the beautiful point that Lee made. She talked about fostering adoptive parents and their needs and giving them the mommy meals too. That's what she said, which I think is just, we come around a newborn baby in a family in a very different way than we do an adoptive and foster family. And we shouldn't. Our family of origin here in the year of St. Joseph, right? Our family of origin is an adoptive family. And mm-hmm. we should understand it that way. And you know this. You talk about this all the time. Is that reflected in our policies? Is that reflected in our view of the family? And are we giving every child the opportunity to have a mom and a dad? You know, like to have that family and that stability and is the government helping us do that? So it's an interesting conversation. I think you'll have people on both sides who fall on whether 
you should have big, expansive federal programs, if it should be state by state. All of those details are important and to nuance, you know, and to nudge out. But in the at the end of the day, do you believe that your government should be supportive of a nuclear family unit or not? And I think the answer is yes. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. We're talking with Monse Alvarado of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. Of course, Monse, you have this wonderful show now, which I hope all our listeners will tune into. But you're also still with the Beckett Fund. And uh, the Beckett Fund does tremendous work. I wish we had two hours to talk about it because you're always um, on the ball, moving the ball of religious liberty forward uh, instead of just reacting, right? It's so important, especially mm-hmm. especially with a new administration that I think is not so friendly to religious liberty. But you had a great win recently regarding churches in the Archdiocese of Washington being allowed to reopen. Probably many of our listeners are listening from places that are still very locked down, maybe even with churches that aren't open. So tell us about how you won this case in D.C. and, and how it affected uh, people's practice. Absolutely. You know, it's a, it's a great case, and, and Cardinal Gregory really kind of stood up in the middle of what seems to be one of the most unfair moments and most confusing moments for the Archdiocese. They they are at the epicenter of where everything happens, right? The What happened on January 6th, the, all of the different protests. I'm sure you can hear there are always sirens behind me here in D.C. There's always something going on in this city, but everyone takes their pay from what is happening in, in the city, and they're very, very well aware. And they were the last outlier, the last ones that had a numerical cap of 250 people in a place like the Basilica, which can hold the Statue of Liberty lying down. That's not a space that should be capped at 250 people for worship, which is essential for people to be able to have these important discussions about painful moments, great loss with the pandemic, racial discussions, right? Issues of identity. All of that stuff gets worked out in, in your parish church, in your um, where you come together as community. And so shutting that down was bad for people in general, for Americans around the country who are affiliated with a religious church, but also bad for people who are searching and wanted answers that the government couldn't give them. And the Cardinal had a beautiful piece in the Washington Post where he was explaining this. This is not a fight between us and the city. This is a fight between us and the broader country's understanding of the essential nature of worship and the sacraments and the role that we play in allowing for people to come together and giving them a forum for discussion and for compassion in the church. So it was was a great victory. I'm very proud of that, and I'm proud that we don't have cap in our country right now. Numerical caps and everything is at a percentage, you know, and eventually everything else will open up, and that will be fantastic. But we were pushing to get that done before Easter, and I'm happy that it did get it did get done. That is wonderful, Monse. That's a that's great news for for all of us because as religious Americans, we need to feel that the country that the government has that same concern for our religious needs as they have for our need for groceries because both are essential. Now, Monse, you've also working on a case that's very interesting to me, which is a one on uh, Wayne State University. Uh, because I have children in different you know, sc- you know, levels at school and I'm very concerned about cancel culture and the ability of students and professors, their ability to express themselves freely without fear of being punished by the administration or by fellow, by their peers. Yeah, you know, it's a super interesting case and we've been watching these closely around the country where people forget that state universities are Basically, they are uh, like government bureaucrats, you know what I mean? They're like a government agency. They wield the power of the government on these students, um, and they're funded by your local government. So they are government actors. And so it's horrifying to see a university administrator pick and choose based on their personal preferences or their personal biases, uh, who is allowed to be on campus, who's allowed to use campus resources. 
And you see a lot of the time that because student groups that are religious hold traditional views on human sexuality or marriage, they get the short end of the stick. They either get silenced, they get kicked off, or they get limited resources or limited access to things. This is what we were seeing at Wayne State. We were seeing we see this in Iowa. Um, there are a couple of universities that have just decided that they could do this. And in the beautiful thing about legal cases is that you get to ask these difficult questions and depositions, and we just... In the record of these cases, you see this horrifying reasoning for why they wanted to shut down um, these and poor reasoning, right? These students and these these um, these religious organizations on campus, and it's pure bias. It's pure discrimination. They just didn't like what they believed and wanted to change it. That's unconstitutional. You you don't lose your First Amendment rights because you're walking onto a university campus to get an education. We talk about rights to education. What about just general human rights to believe what you believe and not to have the government tell you otherwise. So there's a great win where it's not only that universities aren't allowed to do this to students and to religious student groups, they are also now held accountable financially for these abuses. So there is a, if a lawsuit is brought, the university official is held accountable for that, personally held accountable. And that's a big deal. It's a big deal because it puts the government on notice for First Amendment violations, but it also puts universities around the country on notice that students will sue to defend their First Amendment rights. And Rebecca Fund and a bunch of other groups that defend First Amendment rights around this country are going to be there to support them. That is wonderful, Monse, um, because it's true that the money money talks, <laughs> and when people talks, when people right. are worried about you know their income and the money in the bank, that's when they react and they start doing the right thing. It's sad, but that's human nature. So I'm glad. Yeah, that. it's sad. I wish we didn't have to do that. I wish that viewpoint diversity was a real thing on American campuses. That we could go back to the days where fighting over something meant that the best ideas rose to the top, and that we could aggressively with civility but aggressively like chase the best ideas and talk to each other and try to convince each other of things that, that are good for us. Um, but uh, those robust discussions just aren't happening. It's very sad. Well, they're not happening on campus, Monsa, but they're happening on your live weekly show on EWTN-TV. <laughs> EWTN News and Depth. Yeah, it's very exciting. And they happen on your show, too. So... I'm so we are, and we're grateful to have you uh, give us that new uh, great uh, look into the world of of ideas and give us wonderful Catholic discussions about different perspectives. So thank you for joining us, Monse. Thank you for all your work at the Beckett Fund and on EWTN News in Depth. Thank you so much. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. Happy Easter, everyone. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to wish you and your family a happy Easter. As we enter into the consequential conversation the Lord Jesus, risen from the dead, wants to have with each of us. He wants to meet us like he met Mary Magdalene in the garden and call us by name. He wants to converse with us like he did with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, to make our hearts burn as he explains the word of God to us and helps us to recognize him in the breaking of the bread. He wants to speak with us like he spoke with the fearful apostles in the upper room, to wish us peace, to show us his hands and his side, to impart to us the Holy Spirit, and to send us out just like he sent them. 
Jesus ultimately wants to change our lives this Easter and help us to enter more deeply than ever before into his triumph of light over darkness, joy over sadness, love over hatred, and life over death. For this to occur, however, we can't live Easter in a routine way. It's just another important day that will be over in 24 hours. We can't live it merely as an octave or as a 50-day season. We have to let what Easter means sink deeply within us so that it changes profoundly our thinking, our being, our doing, our living. We have to enter into the Easter metamorphosis. After the Incarnation, when the Son of God took on a nature and entered the world, Easter is the most important occurrence and fact in the history of the world. It's a fact that even though the prophets like Ezekiel foretold it, even though Jesus explicitly mentioned it on several occasions, the apostles and disciples were slow to believe. Mary Magdalene thought Jesus' cadaver was stolen, didn't even recognize him initially when he spoke to her in the garden. Peter, when he ran to the tomb, saw the burial cloths and thought that they were evidence, not of the resurrection, but of a theft. Thomas, even after the ten apostles told him Jesus had appeared to them, refused to believe unless he could probe his sacred stigmata with his own hands. Easter is a fact, a fact that many have actively opposed. It started in the ancient world with some of the religious leaders of the Jewish people who tried to bribe the guards to say that Jesus' disciples just came to steal his body. It happened in ancient Corinth where many, including those who claimed to be disciples, said that it didn't really matter whether Christ physically rose from the dead because the only important thing is whether we believe he did. A foolish idea that still pops up in heterodox theology faculty at various universities and in scores of articles and documentaries that appear around this time in which self-professed experts try to claim that Jesus' resurrection is just a myth. But St. Paul replied that if Christ didn't rise from the dead, our faith is vain, it's worthless, it's nothing more than a belief in a fairy tale. And worse than that, he says, would still be in our sins and would still be doomed eternally to die. As Christians, we have to be vigorous in believing, explaining, and defending the fact of the resurrection. The early Christians knew clearly what they were professing about the resurrection and why. They had to because they were continuously ridiculed for believing that a god could die or a man could rise from the dead. The Romans deemed them insane, much like we today would view someone who claimed that Elvis truly is alive. For the first Christians, it could never have been a question of blind faith, which they had and others didn't. Their faith was reasonable, which was how they were able to withstand the taunts and even the torture. The early Christian witness to Christ's resurrection at great personal cost led people of all classes in every nation to enter the church. They knew because of Christ's resurrection that they no longer needed to fear when the Sanhedrin or the Roman emperors or various tyrants and anti-Christian forces across the centuries sadistically threatened them with suffering and death because they knew that if after Christ's scourging and crucifixion he was raised from the dead, God could and would do the same for them. Death no longer had its sting. But Jesus' resurrection cannot remain just a fact, even if it is one of the most important facts of all time. The resurrection is far more than an event. It's meant to be a relationship. Jesus pointed to this in his conversation with Martha before he was about to raise her brother Lazarus from the dead. He said to her, Your brother will rise. 
And she replied, doubtless, because when Jesus had come over to their home, they had asked him what really happens after death, and he'd given some explanation of what would happen at the end of time. She said, I know he will rise on the resurrection in the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus is the resurrection. More than a fact, the resurrection is a relationship. It's living in Jesus and allowing him to live in us as a risen vine and branches. For those in communion with Jesus who enter into his death and resurrection by faith and baptism, death is nothing other than a change of address. That's why St. Paul tells us at the Easter Vigil, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might live in newness of life. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Consequently, you too must think of yourselves as dead to sin and living for God in Christ Jesus. Easter is about this newness of life in which we are dead to our old lives and live for God in Christ Jesus. The perennial danger for us is that Easter, even Easter 2021, in which we happily returned to churches after not being able to celebrate together last year because of lockdowns, becomes reduced to a liturgical rite, a day we dress up, go to church, and then gorge on chocolate Easter bunnies as kids look for plastic eggs with jelly beans and quarters. We can treat Jesus primarily as a figure of the past, an important historical personage with incredible accomplishments whom we occasionally remember but who fails radically to change us. We can marginalize him and treat him as if he's barely alive. We can regard him as a part-time savior, as a part-time lord, a part-time friend, all of which can make us in return simply part-time Christians. She's not a faithful Christian any more than a part-time wife would be a faithful wife. That's not what God wants. It's not what he's made us to desire. He wants to work the same dramatic transformation in us that he worked in the lives of Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John as they went to the tomb on Easter morning. Jesus rose from the dead in order to raise us from the dead, not just later after we croak, but now. We're not really celebrating Easter unless we give him permission to do so. We're not really celebrating Easter well if we remain and want to remain basically the same people we were yesterday. As St. Paul tells us, If you were raised with Christ, seek what is above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Think of what is above, not, as, not of what is on earth. We're not really living the Christian life with faith unless we recognize that Christ rose from the dead in order to raise our eyes, our desires, our lives from seeking after the things of earth, the things of this world, to seeking him and the things that are above where he is. As we celebrate Easter, let us turn to the Lord who died and rose again for us with joy and gratitude. He came so that we might have life and have it to the full, not just now, but forever. Let us beg him for the grace to say a wholehearted yes to his offer of a new life through deeper communion with him who is the resurrection and the life. Let us ask him too for all the help he knows we need to respond like the apostles and the disciples in the early church to bring the news of the resurrection and the offer of this new life in abundance to those we know and love and indeed to the whole world. Christ is risen. Christ is truly risen. And this changes everything. Alleluia. 
Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 